Welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I'm still Danny, your audio host, and for this episode, we're joining my friend Jilly to immerse ourselves in the linguistic landscape of Mexican Spanish. Jilly is here to guide us through important issues like the legacy of colonialism and the practice of linguistic fieldwork, as well as sharing her abundant enthusiasm for Mexico and its many languages. Today, my guest is Jilly Marchini. Jilly is a PhD student in Edinburgh, uh, specifically in phonetics and laboratory phonology. And she has very kindly agreed to come along today and talk about one language that she works on and has a real specialism in. So, uh, Jilly, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you feeling? How's Edinburgh? I'm good, thank you. Edinburgh's fine. It's October here, so it's a wee bit windy, a wee bit rainy. But you know what? It's still a beautiful city, so it's lovely being here. For listeners who may be new to this podcast, the idea of a language I love is, is to give one linguist the space to be extremely passionate about a language that they work on, they know about, or just love, you know, for whatever makes it particularly special. Through a series of questions, and to begin with a bit of a language biography, Jilly is going to introduce one particular language. So, I have to pose the question, the key question, Jilly, what is a language that you love? Well, the language that I am probably most passionate about is Spanish. But within this, I have a particular love for Mexican Spanish. So that is where my specialism lies, is the Spanish spoken in the country of Mexico. Excellent. And I think we should acknowledge straight out of the gate that we've already run into the question of dialect versus language, right? Yeah, we're not going to solve this issue in this podcast, and I think it's best that we just press on with defining Mexican Spanish as a language. Let's use the L term, right? And as I hope we'll get to explore, there is a lot that makes Mexican Spanish very distinct. First and foremost, uh, let's build up a little bit of a language biography for Mexican Spanish. Where can it be found? That's not a trivial question. What is it like within the borders of the modern day country of Mexico? And could you give us a sense of how many speakers there may be? Sure. So when we're talking about Mexico, we're talking about the United States of Mexico is technically its full term. So it's that country just south of the US. And when we say Mexican Spanish, we are talking about the Spanish that is spoken within Mexico, but also by Mexican diaspora populations around the world. So it's not just Mexico, but also Mexican-American populations in the US, for example. And I think the really important thing to note about Mexico, and particularly Mexican Spanish, is that this isn't an indigenous language to the nation. This is a colonialized um, language form that has been brought across through colonialization. So Mexico is a country located in Mesoamerica. It kind of straddles the Central American plate and the North American plate. It depends where you are in the country, depending on which continent you're on. But essentially, what we had was the arrival of the Spanish in 1519 um, to the country that is now Mexico. At this point, it wasn't a unified territory or anything. It was lots of different civilizations living within the same geographical location. Um, Spanish arrived in 1519, and essentially, there was a period of colonization. Um, the conquista, la conquista, los conquistadores arrived and essentially um, took over the country through a series of alliances with other indigenous groups. So it wasn't just the Spanish colonizers against what we refer to now as the Aztecs, who 
but rather it was colonization through lots of alliances between the Spanish and rival indigenous groups. And essentially what happened is we had the Hispanization of the Americas and particularly of Mexico. And through this, we saw the dissemination of Spanish throughout what is now modern day Mexico. We have indigenous people being schooled in Spanish, henceforth leading to this variation in terms of Mexican Spanish. So it started off very similar to Castilian Spanish, came across, and then what we saw was this the way language evolves and changes over time, a separation from where it originally came from, mixing with lots of different languages and lots of different ethnic groups, which therefore leads to um, Mexican Spanish. Um, Mexico has the largest number of native Spanish speakers in the world out with of the US. The US has the most, but second to that is um, Mexico, which has a total population of 124 million native Spanish speakers there. As I've kind of already alluded to, however, Mexican Spanish isn't the only language that's spoken in Mexico. Of course, it's like a very, very plurilingual country, and the government actually recognizes 68 other indigenous languages there. Um, so this is a country that is by no means monolingual in its character, and instead is pluricultural and plurilingual, which is reflected in the use of Mexican Spanish within its borders, I think. Mexico is huge. It's a really, really large country. And this process of colonization, both socially and linguistically, happened through a limited number of people. So the conquistadors, there's not many of them to begin with. So I'm just wondering, within the borders of modern day Mexico, what's the spread of Spanish like? Are there areas where Mexican Spanish is everyone's language and areas where it's only a kind of prestige political lingua franca? Is, is it the spread of Mexican Spanish maybe a bit patchy? in Mexico? I think that's a very fair assessment. So when we talk about Mexican society, we can't deny the colonial history and as such the racial hierarchy which exists within Mexico. So what we have is we have the central areas, which is very Spanish dominant. And in these areas, we get a lot more mixing European indigenous character in terms of people and cultural identity. We also have very indigenous areas of the country. And these are sort of more the southern states of Oaxaca, Chiapas, for example. And in these areas, you get a much more densely populated indigenous population. And here you're more likely to get monolingual speakers, particularly amongst the older generations. These will be monolingual indigenous language speakers. Um, so some of the most prominent indigenous languages within Mexico include Mixtec, which is spoken in Oaxaca. You have Nahuatl, which is spoken in the Central Valley. You have Trique, which is also spoken in Oaxaca. You have Maya, which is part of the Mayan language family, which is spoken on the border with Guatemala, particularly part of the southern state of Chiapas. So you have lots of different indigenous character. Unfortunately, now, well, from a linguistic point of view, it is unfortunate. Obviously, not everyone will agree with this statement. But from a linguistic point of view, we are getting a reduction in the number of indigenous language speakers with increased education. So although we are having patches of indigenous language monolingual speakers, the newer generations are almost certainly bilingual. So we are seeing an increase in bilingualism amongst indigenous language speakers and Mexican Spanish speakers. So within Mexican Spanish, we're using this as a linguistic term, as a name for the language we're talking about today. I'm imagining that that's still an umbrella term. With such a geography, with such a broad geography, with such a spread of different peoples within Mexico, there must also be variation within Mexican Spanish, right? Yes, and that's essentially what I research. So my current project is actually looking at documenting the phonetic and phonological features of Afro-Mexican Spanish. So this is a variety of Spanish. We can call it an ethnolect in the sense that it's a variety of language which is spoken by a certain ethnic group. So this is a variety of Spanish that is spoken by those of 
African heritage in Mexico. And these are a very, very small and invisible population within Mexico. So these are located on the Costa Chica, those these settlements. Um, the Costa Chica is, if you know Mexican geography, it's on the Pacific coast where Acapulco is. Most people kind of know where Acapulco is, it's the Pacific coast. It's just south of that. So the wee corner of Mexico, that's where we're looking there. And essentially it's a variety that is spoken by those of mixed indigenous and African descent on this coast. And it's something that just hasn't really been documented. And it's something I'm really passionate about documenting. There are approximately 2 million people that self-identify as Afro-Mexican in Mexico. So there's clearly a population here. And although there are other Afro-Hispanic language varieties which have been documented, the variety spoken in Mexico kind of remains largely invisible. Um, so there's lots of variation going on within here, but it just hasn't really been documented to a higher extent. So when people think about Mexican Spanish, they tend to think of that from Mexico City, that that you see in the films. All of that, they don't think about the variation within this umbrella term. And that's something I'm really passionate about. I'm really passionate about documenting. In terms of this specific ethnolect that you research, how different is it to other kinds of Mexican Spanish? Someone from Mexico City, for example, if they heard it, would they be like, oh, that's very different? Or is it, eh, okay, I've heard that before, you know, what's it like in terms of perception? It would be very different for a speaker of Mexico City Spanish. So I myself, although I'm not from Mexico, uh, the variety I speak is from Mexico City. And crucially, what I find is that when I play an excerpt of this dialect to a Spanish speaker, either from Mexico or from Chile or from Argentina, they assume it's Cuban because it sounds incredibly similar to Cuban Spanish. In so doing, it's incredibly different from Mexico City Spanish. So one of the most defining characteristics of Mexico City Spanish is its strong S. So in Spanish, S the sibilant can undergo weakening in various different contexts. And this is quite a defining characteristic of different varieties of Spanish. We can categorize them whether they have this S weakening effect or whether they don't. And Mexico City and Mexican Spanish is typically considered a variety in which we don't have this S weakening. Interestingly, on the Costa Chica, in this ethnolect, we do get this S weakening. Despite the fact it is surrounded by those varieties that don't weaken S. So an example would be if I were to say, well, I went to the shops as a repeated action in the imperfect tense. Pues iba a las tiendas, a las tiendas. Pues iba a las tiendas. If I were an Afro-Mexican Spanish speaker, I would weaken all of those S's. So I say, pues iba a la tienda. So I would almost have no coda S, so no word final S, in any of those positions. For a Mexico City Spanish speaker, that is something that's incredibly Caribbean. That is Puerto Rico, that's the Dominican Republic, that's Cuba, that's even some coastal parts of Venezuela, Colombia, etc. But we get this happening in a variety of Mexican Spanish. And of course, there's all sorts of historical reasons why that might be happening. And we can hypothesize it's due to some sort of creolization, decreolization process, or the fact that maybe it's thought that the African slaves were originally transported from Cuba, so perhaps they brought their variety of Cuban Spanish as it was then to Mexico due to the social isolation that has developed into this, what is now Afro-Mexican Spanish. But from a functional point of view, they are very, very different. And we get a different lexicon. We get all sorts of different stuff. So for example, I was there and they were talking about this local legend of a woman who was sunbathing naked on a rock. And in typical Mexican Spanish, it's una mujer desnuda. It's like a woman completely undressed. 
And they use, and I can't remember the exact word, but they use such a word that I had to say, I'm so sorry. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I speak fluent Spanish and I had no idea what they were talking about. So it's very much a different dialect. And they themselves are aware of that. Whenever they go outside of the Costa Chica, outside of the Afro-Mexican geographical region, they say that other Mexicans struggle to understand them and often ask where they're from. They're assumed to be from the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Cuba. And this is particularly common when they go to the U.S., when they migrate to the U.S., because there's a lot of migration to the U.S. Mexican communities there are reluctant to consider them Mexican due to the fact that their variety is so different. So it's very much a perceptual thing, despite the fact that this community is largely invisible within Mexican society. It, there is a recognition that their language is different. This particular Afro-Mexican variety, then, what's it called? What do they call it? How do they call themselves? So they simply identify as Costeño. So Costeño comes from Costa Chica, small coast, Costeño. But what's really interesting is during my first trip to the field here, I was based in the principal town of this area, which is called Cuajiniquilapa, which is an indigenous name. It comes from the Nahuatl language, which is, a, which is a language that's spoken in and around the area by various groups. And within Cuajiniquilapa, I'll just call it Cuaji from now on because it's much simpler than saying the whole thing. There's a lot of consonants in it, so it can be very confusing when people first hear it. But Cuaji essentially is an Afro-Mexican town, but with a significant amount of indigenous mixing. So there's a lot of indigenous language speakers there, whether it's Mixtec, Trique, Zapotec, Amusco, Nahua, there's a massive mixing. So people from this area actually refer to themselves as Moreno. Now, for our European PC ears, that sounds a bit horrible. It literally translates as brown. But for them, the term Moreno encompasses this mixed African indigenous heritage. If you go to the other settlements outside of this town, what you get instead is an identification as Buro Afro, pure African. So even within the Costa Chica itself, there are demographic differences. Those from the big town are mixed African indigenous, and those from the smaller villages are Afro. They don't consider themselves exactly the same, but they do recognize that their variety of Spanish, Costeño, is in fact different. And they are acknowledging of the fact that they have African heritage. What then might be the indigenous contribution to Mexican Spanish and to Costeño specifically then? Because I'm just thinking in terms of historical linguistics, uh, a kind of principle in historical linguistics is that the more intense the contact, the greater the influence that you see in the language. It kind of gets down to the level of basic vocabulary, maybe even sounds, maybe even grammar. So within Mexican Spanish, what is the legacy then and what is the influence of these indigenous languages? How strong would you say it's been? As you know, I will leave the historical linguistics to you. That is not my field at all. In terms of my experience as someone that has learned Mexican Spanish, the primary way that we see this is through the lexicon. So as you said, through the lexicon, and typically for items relating to food and household, farming, for example, all of that. So I think my favorite Mexican word is the word for a turkey. So typically in Spanish and kind of all around, I'm not sure if this is the same in other Latin American countries, but the words we were taught in school, because we were obviously taught Castilian Spanish, because that is seen as the best variety, which I have very, very strong feelings on. No variety is better than any other. But we were taught pavo, pavo. So P-A-V-O, pavo. 
And I got to Mexico, and in Mexico, it's a Guadalajote. And I just was like, oh, what's, what, what's that word? I don't know what that is. And it's a turkey, and it comes from the Nahuatl word. And it's often food. The food has stayed very traditional. It's still very much a corn-based bean diet with lots of chili. And one of the dishes that they eat in Oaxaca in particular is the tlayuda. And that consonant cluster is completely illegal in Spanish. T and L, you're never going to get that as a consonant cluster in the same syllable in Spanish. That, that's never going to happen. But through the indigenous influence, there are words like this that exist within Mexican Spanish. And it's the same with place names. So there's a really big volcano in Mexico, in Puebla. And again, it ends in this illegal consonant cluster, this T and L. So it's Popocatepetl. And it's such a great word. Honestly, when I learned how to say that word, I felt like I had accomplished Mexican Spanish. I was done because it was something all my Mexican friends were like, you're never going to be able to say it. And then one day I did. And I was like, there we go. So having that consonant cluster on the end, it's kind of in terms of the lexicon, the place names, the good names that you really see this influence. When you get down to the basic everyday things, you see the indigenous, and particularly the Nahuatl indigenous language influence. I think that's important to say. This was the primary, I don't want to say the primary civilization because that makes the others sound that they weren't as important, but it was the one that controlled the most power within central Mexico at the time was the Mexica. And that's what we know as the Aztecs and their language was Nahuatl. So that's where we see the greatest influence. They were almost like an empire in and of themselves with other indigenous groups. And the Spanish just took over their place as the leader of the empire. So that's where we see the greatest influence from the Nahuatl language is through these kind of everyday things. Well, that was such a wonderful and enthusiastic introduction to Mexican Spanish. I personally learned a great deal. This is really outside my field of knowledge. So brilliant. Really, really good introduction there. At this juncture, I would like to slightly shift the focus away from Mexican Spanish and onto you, Jilly, to talk about your relationship to this language, your personal history. As you have mentioned yourself, you were not born into a Spanish-speaking community. You grew up in Ireland and the UK, so this is something that you've come to as an academic, as a scholar. You have this you know, great love and this great expertise in Mexican Spanish. So how did you get from point A to point B? How did you get from somebody growing up in Northern Ireland to, to somebody who now studies this and spends so much time in Mexico and really engaging with the communities out there? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny story, actually. Like, it's been a lot of happy accidents that I've kind of ended up at this path. So obviously at school in the UK, languages aren't particularly valued at an educational level. And so it wasn't a requirement for us to do languages at my school for GCSE. We didn't have that requirement. But my mum's a linguist, and I think that has something to do with it. My mum studied French and Spanish at Queen's in Belfast. And I think that had always kind of been installed in me that languages were fun, they were important. I always used to be going to school on holidays. She speaks French very, very well and lived in Brussels, lived abroad and all of that. So like I used to grow up with her essentially instilling in me that it's okay to learn another language. It's not a waste of time. I wouldn't say that she pushed me towards it, but it wasn't out and out. Why would you do this? Focus on science. So at school, I was like, oh, you know what? I'll do French GCSE. You know, that I, I like French. It's, it's, it's good. I like it. I'm OK at it. And then there was the option to pick up Spanish. And I was like, I was stuck between that and geography, to be perfectly honest. And my dad's a geologist. So my dad was obviously pointing me towards geography. And I was like, do I do geography and look at maps? I don't really want to do that. 
or I could do Spanish. That seems fun. So I was like, cool, I'm going to do Spanish. And essentially, I just completely fell in love with the language. Whenever I speak Spanish, I don't know what it is. I just I just feel so comfortable and so happy when I speak Spanish. And I just wanted to know so much more about this language. And also, we learned Castilian Spanish. And at this point, I was like, isn't there like a whole other continent with stuff going on? Like, is that the same language? These linguistic nuggets were forming in my mind. And so I got my GCSE. I, it was so funny. I'd done French for two years more. I got an A at GCSE and I got an A star in Spanish. I clearly just was like, nah, this is for me. I love this. I did really well at Spanish. I then at A level, I continued with my two languages. I did French, Spanish, um, and then I did philosophy and ethics and history. I was a real like humanities girl at that stage. And I've since done a massive U-turn on that. But I did Spanish and I was like, oh, love this. And then I was like, do you know what? I was looking at university courses. And I was like, I know I don't want to do literature. I don't want to study like Don Quixote, Cien Años de Soledad. I don't want to do that. I care about the language itself. I don't, I'm not discrediting literature. I think literature studies are very, very important. Just not for me. I don't care why the curtains are blue. I just care that they were blue. That's my point. <laughs> and I wasn't, wasn't about analyzing that in any great detail. So I was looking at courses and I saw that the University of Southampton had one with an introductory course to linguistics. And I kind of did it on a bit of a whim. I was like, sure, I'll do linguistics. That means no literature. Let's do that. Did it on that. And then I just fell in love with linguistics. And I realized that I could combine my love of Spanish with my love of the scientific study of language by scientifically studying Spanish. Southampton also had some great year abroad opportunities. So I didn't particularly want to go to Spain. I'd already spent quite a lot of time in Spain and kind of wanted something different for my year abroad. And originally, the option was for me to go to Colombia. That was originally my option. Um, and I was like, sure, I'm going to go to Colombia for a year. It'll be great. And unfortunately, that was pulled the year I was meant to go. And I was devastated. I was like, oh, now I have to go to Mexico. I really wanted to go to Colombia. Now I have to oh, go to Mexico. It's not as far as way. Oh, my God, it's on the border with the US. I don't want to do that. And I went. And I fell in love with the place. Like Mexico just absolutely enchanted me. I met some of my closest friends in the world. I was living just outside of Mexico City. We had to do a research project while we were out there. And I thought, you know what? I really like sounds. I'm going to do something on sounds. And then I realized that, oh, there isn't actually a huge amount on the phonetic technology of Mexican Spanish. There's an awful lot on European varieties, but not so much on these transatlantic varieties. Oh, I'll just do something here. I hit upon something and I was like, oh, we've got some really interesting vocalic effects and really interesting interactions with consonants. Oh, this is really fun. This is geeky. Really got into the acoustic side of it. And that's where I was like, actually, am I a STEM girly? I'm not actually a humanities girly. I really like STEM and I like coding and acoustics and statistics. It's just the way it was introduced to me at school either wasn't the right time or it wasn't you know, the right thing. And I think that's really important when people think about linguistics. It's not one thing. You don't have to leave your humanities to one side to do the scientific study. You don't have to reject statistics to do the humanities. It's a nice little marrying of the two. And I figured this out and I figured out, oh, I can do this on Mexican Spanish. That is so cool. Because by this stage, I went over to Mexico with a really Castilian Madrid accent. And I came away with such a strong Mexican City Spanish accent to the point now people get really bamboozled when I speak because I quite clearly, I look very Irish. 
And then I speak with a Mexico City accent. And it is my favorite party trick in the world. In the world, I love it. Particularly when they think I can't understand them. I'm like, oh, I can. It's great. So I came away with that. And then I did my final year at university. And I actually did a project on French. And I kind of, during that project, I was like, oh, I definitely want to go back to Mexican Spanish. And then for my master's by research, I applied, I took a break from academia to figure out what I wanted to do, which is incredibly common. If people are thinking about doing it, do it, take a break. It's not going to do you any harm. And it's actually going to help you figure out what, you, what you're interested in. So during this time, I realized, oh, actually, I really want to do more about Mexican Spanish. Applied to Edinburgh, um, got accepted onto the master's by research and worked on a cross-dialectic comparison between Mexican Spanish and Chilean and Argentinian Spanish and some comparison with Madrid Spanish. And again, during that time, I was like, yeah, these other varieties are absolutely great, but Mexican Spanish is where my heart lies. That's where I'm really interested in. And I was particularly, during my time in Mexico, someone had mentioned something about the Afro-Mexican population and that kind of, that nugget had stayed with me. Um, and then I applied for the PhD to do this documentation of this variety, this supra-segmental and segmental analysis. And that's currently what I'm doing. And it means I, and I have the wonderful position of being able to go and spend large amounts of time in Mexico working with this population which is just such a blessing the fact that I can consider that work when really it's just what I'm passionate about. That's absolutely fantastic and there is no one story into linguistics or any academic subject but one common thread I've noticed among people's stories is that real feeling it tends to be during your undergrad degree that you actually can combine these things that you love you can study the language that you love in the way that you're interested um and i just think that's great that now you can actually go over to mexico and it's your job it's what you do which is interesting to me and very alien to me frankly as a historical linguist the speakers of the languages i study are very very dead you know i was gonna you know, say this is probably the most interview skills you've ever had you've never had to interview anybody for linguistics, right <laughs> that is very fair to be honest uh <laughs> i can't fault you on that uh yes i'm actually talking to a real human being and i'm not like you know squinting at the texts that you left behind um but it does interest me because field work this idea of going out into the world documenting languages spending time with communities of languages that is called field work and it's a real skill it's a skill that I don't have and I'm just wondering could you just take us through what's that like that experience of field work how do you go over there and how do you do it successfully how do you get the information that you want and how do you do it respectfully too you're not dealing with people in the abstract you're dealing with real flesh and blood people and you have to be respectful right when you're doing this and that's something that I really I, I don't know about that's Another thing I'm very passionate about is the framework I primarily adopt when I'm doing this fieldwork is a decolonialized framework. So this is an anti-colonial framework. In this way, I'm rejecting the power dynamics that are intrinsic to a lot of fieldwork. So by that, I mean the speech data that they're sharing with me is cultural patrimony. That is their culture. They are being kind enough to share that with me. I'm not collecting it. I'm not harvesting it from them. They are sharing it with me. It is them opting in. In that way, I don't go to the field. I don't extract the data. I'm not a data extractivist. I don't say, hey, I'm going to record you and then I'm going to run away. I'm going to lock up your data in a university password protected hard drive and you're never going to see the research outputs of it because it's going to be in a dusty journal in the bottom of some library. That's not a fair approach. That is exploitation and collusion. I view the community as active collaborators in the project. They have equal ownership 
of the data and of the research output that I do. Because without them, it wouldn't be possible. So I'm very passionate about this. And I also, I have to recognize the power dynamics that are there and navigate these accordingly. So I cannot deny the fact that I am a white researcher from the global north. I do not have any of the same experiences people of these communities do. And I have to acknowledge the fact that when I come in, there's a power dynamic there. Whether I want it to be or not, there is. So I have to do things to mitigate that, to ensure that exploitation is not occurring. And one of the ways that I do that is prior to the data sharing process having commenced, I go to the field and I spend time with the community without having done any recordings. So this is kind of like the community building networking. And this is done through a community liaison contact. You don't go in cold. You don't go in being like, hi, I'm here to get you on the map. That's very white savior. And that is not something I adhere to either. This is going in and being like, hi, I'm just curious about your culture. And luckily, I have um, colleagues at the Universidad de Querétaro, which is a university in Mexico, that are also working with these communities. And they were able to put me in contact with a local community leader who organizes various cultural events. And through him, I was ingratiated into the society. So that means taking part in cultural events. That means not passing judgment on anything. Even though some cultures are going to be incredibly different from my own, I cannot go into that thinking that one is superior to the other. I have to go into that and just accept that that's the way it is. And my job is to document it. My first trip to the field was actually in April and May this year. I went in. I didn't have any plans on doing any recordings. I just got to know the community. I got to know Miguel, who is an absolute sweetheart and I love. I can't wait to see him again next year. I got taken around to all the different villages. I got to know people. And then what happened was very luckily, Miguel was like, do you want to do you want to chat to some people and record them? And I was like, are you sure that's OK? And he was like, yeah, yeah, they'd like that. They'd like that. And what I did in return is I brought shortbread from Scotland and tea. Um, because um, I asked Miguel whether it would be appropriate for payment, because coming from our culture, we think, oh, we should pay for that time. And Miguel was, I was informed that that would be considered very rude in this culture. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll just give them gifts. Gift giving is very Mexican. Um, I was like, cool, I'll bring them shortbread. So they got tartan covered shortbread from Edinburgh, from MS in Edinburgh, only the best. And it's through this that the community shared their data with me in pilot studies and pilot recordings. And um, this has allowed me then to identify some key features of their variety and design experiments accordingly for my return to the field in January. A key aspect is also making sure that the research outputs are of benefit to them. Um, so one of the questions that I asked was, um, what would you like to see come out of this community storytelling interaction? And one of them was a children's book about the community and its origins and the local legends and the local traditions um, for more educational materials so the children can learn about their own culture through educational materials. So we're hoping to, I'm hoping to collaborate with some other colleagues in the production of this book, get it published in Mexico and made available to the community.
Brilliant. So, the second question that is integral to the format of this podcast is quite a simple one, which is, what is something that you love about Mexican Spanish? I know this is a bit difficult for someone working with this language to decide, but if you had to think of something, literally anything about the spelling or the people or the phonetics, probably the phonetics in your case, but, you know, you have free reign to talk very passionately about something that is just cool about Mexican Spanish. Uh, my answer is probably twofold. So in terms of a phonetic linguistic perspective, I love, and this is kind of pan-Mexican, so I'm not talking here, well, pan-Mexican to an extent, it's very much, I've noted it in my Afro-Mexican data, and it's also a feature of central Mexican Spanish, so Mexico City, is the unique intonation. Um, so I once heard it said that Mexican Spanish sounds like Mickey Mouse speaking Spanish and I love that analogy because what you get is this at the end of each utterance or the intonational phrase you get a very unique circumflex intonational contour so when we say intonation what we're referring to here is the tune or the pitch of the utterance so English has intonation and this reflects the pragmatic meaning of the utterance. So you could tell the difference from me saying, you're going to the shops, between you're going to the shops. So you can see here that the tune of the utterance completely changes the meaning. I'm asking you a question, I'm stating a fact. Spanish and Mexican Spanish also have this intonation. Um, but what's really unique about Mexico City Spanish is we have the circumflex accent on the end. So it goes up and then down. I think a really good example is there's a really common Mexican phrase, which is no manches, which means literally it means don't stain, but it means oh, like no way, like you're having me on or like you're incredulous about something. And you can really hear this up and down contour when I say it, no manches, manches. You can really hear this, I no manches. It's so salient. To the point that my supervisor is Chilean here. One of my supervisors is Chilean. And whenever we speak in Spanish, he is like, I think it's so funny how you will just go up and down all the time. And I'll be like, yeah, it's just, it's what they do. It's what I learned to do. Obviously, I'm not a native speaker, but it's something that I have acquired. And I just think it instantly makes you happy. This sing-songy intonation, it's just so lovely. And this circumflex accent occurs in almost all declarative utterances. So typically in Spanish, you have a lowering, no manches, you have like this lowering. So that's like in Castilian varieties and stuff. But in Mexi Mexican Spanish, you will have this up and down and it just makes you so happy. It makes you literally elated. Um, so I really love this feature. And it's a feature that I'm currently studying in Afro-Mexican Spanish is whether we also get this unique circumflex accent. Well, not unique. It does occur in other varieties of Spanish, but it occurs at a much more frequent rate in Mexico Spanish and Mexican City Mexican Spanish um, in particular. So we get this a much, it occurs essentially in every sort of declarative utterance. So it's very, very common. And the second thing I love about Mexico is its people. Um, I think it has some of the friendliest, loveliest people in the world. I think the food is just incredible. I'm a vegetarian in Edinburgh. I am not a vegetarian in Mexico. It has to be said. I am not turning down that food. It's a culture where you help people. Um, I think we become quite jaded in Northern Europe and it's quite isolationist and quite um, self-centered. Whilst in Mexico, everybody chips in and everybody helps. And I think that's so refreshing. 
And I just absolutely love it there. Some of my best friends in the world are Mexican. Um, the warmth that that country has shown me. I was 18, 19 when I moved across for the first time. You know, I was, who let that child move to Mexico? That's what I say to my parents all the time. I'm like, who were you to let me move to Mexico City? But the warmth I received there and the love, it's just, I think it's the most beautiful place in the world. Last but not least is the third question of the whole format, which is just simply, what is something that you want the listeners to know about when it comes to Mexican Spanish? What is a kind of parting point that you would like them to keep fresh in their minds as they go out into the world, newly educated about Mexico and its many languages? I think you've touched upon it there, that Mexico is not a homogenous country. There's lots, as a variationist, um, I'm very passionate about diversity and the study of diversity and the unbiased approach to diversity. We are not saying here that one variety of Mexican Spanish or one variety of Spanish is superior to the other. That is not what we're saying. We're simply saying that there is variation and that variation warrants research. I think there is an image of Mexico as sombreros and cowboys and I think if you actually get to know the country and the language, you'll see that it's a diverse and beautiful landscape of different groups, different languages, different cultures, all coming together to represent one of the most colourful places in the world. Um, so I think that's my parting remark. Get to know it and get to know its pluricultural character. It's a beautiful country. And I think in terms of a linguistic perspective, it's language warrants research, and I think that's often not acknowledged within the linguistic community, particularly within the phonetics and laboratory phonology community. We tend to think that if it's not spoken in Spain, it's not worth researching. So we have very, and I'm not saying Spanish varieties don't warrant research. I'm not saying that at all. They, of course, do. But I think we need to apply the same vigour and the same passion about studying Iberian varieties of Spanish to studying transatlantic varieties of Spanish. I've read it in books that there are two main varieties of Spanish. There's Iberian and American. And that just sends my brain into overdrive because I would love to see someone from Chile speaking exactly the same as someone from the Dominican Republic. That's never going to happen. You're not going to have two people from the same city if they're from different socioeconomic classes speaking in the same way. So I think my parting remark, as well as get to know Mexico, is get to know Spanish. It's not just Spain, and it's not just those varieties that are worth linguistic and academic research. It's wonderful. I think this is so helpful. This is almost like a tonic, an antidote even, to thinking about Spanish in a very limited way. I think you've brought a lot of necessary colour to the world of Spanish to this linguistic world. So that is fantastic. Uh, really, really interesting and interesting intellectually, but interesting on an emotional level as well. You really feel that, yes, there's just so much to do. There's so much interesting variation out there. So wonderful. All that remains is for me to ask if people want to know more about this, where can they find you and your research? Or where would you recommend that people go if they want to continue their interest in Mexican Spanish? Um, so if you want to get in touch with me, um, you can look me up. I'm Gillian Marcini at the University of Edinburgh. You'll find my personal website and my university page with my email address, etc. If you're interested in reading more about Mexican Spanish and you're not a linguist, 
I actually, and the academic community might be a bit cross with me right now, but go on Wikipedia and look up Mexican Spanish. And it, that's where I started in my journey. And it has a wonderful list of the common phonetic and phonological characteristics, a wonderful list of the morphological characteristics, syntactic and lexical. And I'm not saying take that for gospel, but it'll point you in the right direction of which area you want to look at. Um, if you want to look at the phonetics and phonology, um, I'm, I've written a couple of papers on Mexico City Spanish. You can check them out. Um, I'm also currently in the process of writing up some data from the Afro-Mexican variety. So you can see that. And there have actually been, I really should shout out to um, a uh, one dissertation. So to date, there has been one full research project into Afro-Mexican Spanish. And that is Mayan 2007, who provided a description of the variety, focusing more on the morphosyntactic and lexical characteristics. So if you want to look at those, you can, you, I recommend consulting that piece of work. All great materials. And as you say, the point about Wikipedia is a very valid one. It's a great start. It's a great launch pad for further research and dive into it, follow the links, follow the references. I, I, I'm totally with you on that one. Go to those references. There are some great references there. They will, they will point you in the right direction of what you want to look at. Okay, well, now all that remains to say is just thank you very much. You know, this has been a real pleasure. I think this is a great episode in so many different ways. So thank you, Jilly. No, thank you, Danny. It's been wonderful being on. As mentioned by Jilly, one influential language of Mexico is Nahuatl. In languages of European origin, such as Spanish or English, Nahuatl has contributed a considerable amount of vocabulary, relating especially to food that originates in the Americas. The Nahuatl word ahuacalt, for example, is the source of the avocado. While this and its word for sauce, morli, combine to give us guacamole. As for tomatoes, chilies, and even chocolate, we can thank the Nahuatl language for them too. That's it for this episode of A Language I Love Is. A big thank you goes to Jilly for joining me and to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate and recommend the podcast. Every bit of support helps the show to grow. Till the next time then, bye-bye.